Hi, I'm Lewis and welcome to Searching For It. Just wanted to begin today's episode by letting you all know that Searching For It now has a website. You can find the site at www.searchingforit.org and for those of you who prefer streaming on your computer, you can find all the episodes on there. You'll see links to the podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon pages, but I've also added a recommended reading page on the website where I'll make a note of all the books, films, podcasts and anything else I found interesting in my research for each episode that if you want to look a bit deeper into any of the topics, might be a good place to start. But moving on with today's episode, we're going to be looking at a philosopher called Jean-Paul Sartre. And I'm sorry to any native French speakers out there if I'm butchering the pronunciation. I think the Sartre is one of those pretty rare philosophers who's kind of broken out of the dingy philosopher's cave and actually managed to become a household name. But unless you've spent a bit of time learning about his philosophy, you might not know too much about what it is he actually stood for. Well, first and foremost, Sartre is what you'd call an existentialist. He wasn't the first existentialist. Most people probably say that was a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard, who I hope we'll look at in a future episode. But what makes Sartre really significant himself is that he was probably the main player in bringing existentialism to a wider audience for really making it popular. We'll come on in just a little bit as to what Sartre's existentialism actually is and why we should care about it in 2019. But first, just to provide a bit of context, I think it'd be good to talk about what kind of a guy Sartre was, what kind of person we're talking about here. I know there are people out there who think that if you want to truly understand a philosopher's ideas, you shouldn't get too bogged down in their life story. The thought being that their personal life is besides the point and distracts you from the kind of essence of their ideas. But Sartre didn't just write about abstract philosophy. His philosophy was grounded in the real world, in life and also in his life. Sartre's philosophy, I think, is a philosophy to be lived, and he tried to live his life as authentically as possible, in accordance with his own philosophy. And more than that, Sartre is actually a big fan of the role of biography in philosophy. I mean, he was a biographer himself, as well as writing his own autobiography, which he used to expand upon his own philosophical ideas. So I do think that understanding Sartre as a person can help kind of bring his ideas to life. So, if we go way back to Paris in 1905, that's the time that Sartre was born into what would have been called a bourgeois family. Sartre had a fairly privileged upbringing, but this didn't stop him having a difficult childhood. His father passed away in Indochina when Jean-Paul was only two, and Sartre was largely bullied throughout his teenage years in La Rochelle. Unfortunately and famously, Sartre didn't have looks on his side either. He was never the best-looking guy, and he actually recounts an occasion when, at just seven years old, his grandfather took him out to get his long golden locks of hair cut. Now, up until this point, Sartre was referred to as the angel, but Sartre looks back on this haircut being the moment at which, seeing his naked face for the first time, he realised that he was ugly. And as the story goes, his mother didn't do much to make him feel any better. When Sartre got home and his mother saw his face, she ran upstairs crying. But to cut Sartre a bit of slack, as much as his ugliness, Sartre was also known for being an extremely charismatic and witty man, which pretty much compensated for his ugliness. And on that basis, Sartre didn't have any problems with the ladies either. He enjoyed what was a pretty controversial open relationship with Simone de Beauvoir from his mid-twenties up until his death in 1980, during which time they also had many other lovers. 
I think one of the most important things for Sartre, and we'll come on to see how his branch of existentialism ties in with this thought, was to live his life authentically, how he wanted to live it, and not just as society told him he should live it. You can see that with his open relationship with Simone de Beauvoir. Remember, this is the earlier 20th century we're talking about. Those kinds of relationships were not common at all then. And in fact, Sartre's whole career as a philosopher as well was pretty unconventional too. Unlike almost all philosophers, Sartre never became a university academic. He earned most of his money just teaching and writing his own books, essays and plays. And Sartre wasn't just a philosopher within philosophy circles. As I mentioned earlier, Sartre was one of those few philosophers who essentially became a celebrity in his own right. I think Sartre probably knew he'd really made it when, at a lecture he was giving in Paris in 1945, people were going absolutely crazy to get the chance to see him speak. The box office was mobbed, chairs were damaged, audience members passed out in the heat, and Time magazine even published a photo of the event with the caption, Philosopher Sartre, woman swooned. As I've said though, Sartre wasn't just a conformer. He had strong beliefs about the life he should lead, and he tried to kind of be the changes he wanted to see in the world. But obviously, when you get people like Sartre who are belligerently non-conformist, pretty often they'll have some controversial opinions too. They'll ruffle a few feathers. And one of Sartre's big projects, which maybe didn't age too well, was his long-standing support for the Soviet Union and his involvement in the French underground communist scene. As we'll see throughout this episode, a lot of these aspects of Sartre's life are interconnected with his philosophy. But to get a grip on what Sartre's philosophy really looked like, let's begin by trying to unpack the ideas of existentialism more generally. So there's loads of different directions that you can take existentialism. Loads of different existentialist philosophers, each with their own unique spin. But broadly, existentialism is the idea that the individual human being is free and also responsible not just for creating their own identity and directing their own lives, but also often in actively shaping and defining the world around them as well. Now, there are some philosophies that I think you can fairly accurately summarise in a sentence. Take utilitarianism, for example, the idea that the morally best thing to do is to maximise happiness and to minimise pain. Now, within that short sentence, you have a fairly clear idea of what utilitarians stand for. You know, all other things being equal, utilitarians would probably oppose torture because it creates more pain than it does happiness. And utilitarians would probably think that marijuana isn't such a bad thing because it can create a lot of pleasure but doesn't really tend to lead to any suffering. Now, don't get me wrong, you can take utilitarianism in a million different directions as well. But the details of utilitarianism are precisely that. They're details which add further complexities to the theory while the general theory in itself is pretty straightforward. And the reason I say that is I think that existentialism is probably the opposite, at least for me. If I try and define it as, as I say, a theory that says we're all free to create ourselves in the world around us, I feel like it sounds pretty abstract, kind of vague, and not really saying that much. At first glance, it might even seem kind of obvious that we have the freedom to control our own lives, at least to some degree. I mean, a lot of the last few hundred years of human history have seen people sacrifice their lives to abolish slavery, for civil rights, for LGBT rights. But existentialism is saying a lot more than that. Maybe unlike utilitarianism, I feel like it's the core idea at the centre of existentialism that becomes more and more clear the further that we dive into the grisly depths of it. 
So I'll try and take this one step at a time, and I'll focus in this episode on Sartre's own brand of existentialism, as we'll hopefully spend some future episodes, as I've said, looking at other existentialist philosophers as well. I think one of the most foundational starting points for Sartre is his atheism. A little bit like Camus, Sartre is not convinced by any religious or spiritual explanations as to the meaning of his existence. Sartre describes himself as a humanist, and as far as he's concerned, he's found himself born into this strange universe with no objective purpose for him to work towards, no clear meaning to his existence, and no clear objective set of values to live in accordance with. So like Camus, Sartre wants to understand it in a godless world. What does it all mean? How can I understand myself and my place in the universe? And how should I direct my life? Now, to be clear again, this is Sartrean existentialism that I'm talking about here. Not all existentialists begin from atheism. A Kierkegaard, for example, is just one philosopher who uses his existentialist notion of freedom to ground his religious faith. There are definitely ways you can make them compatible. But as I say, for Sartre, who we'll be looking at today, you've got a definite starting point here of atheism, of a scepticism towards the idea of a god who grounds the value of our life in the universe. And as well as this commitment to atheism, I think it's also useful to bear in mind the historical context in which Sartre is working. As a Parisian in the aftermath of World War II, Sartre is writing as a citizen of a country whose capital city had just spent four years under the occupation of the Nazi regime, which obviously brought to the forefront of the mind all kinds of questions about freedom. And as a Parisian, Sartre wasn't the only philosopher having these kinds of thoughts. The cafes and jazz clubs where you'd find Sartre in post-war Paris were exactly as you'd imagine them, with the stereotypical young, edgy Frenchman in black turtleneck sweaters, as you had the likes of Sartre, Camus, Beauvoir, Marcel and Merleau-Ponty, all creating their philosophies together in this kind of existentialist subculture. There was quite a funny line I saw quoted in a book by Sarah Blakewell that I put on the recommended reading on my website. She pointed out that with its emphasis on freedom, and its disregard for the traditional morality. The existentialist scene came to be known as a kind of rebellious hotspot, and she quoted a line that the philosopher Gabriel Marcel overheard an older lady say on a train. So the lady said, Sir, what a horror existentialism. I have a friend whose son is an existentialist. He lives in a kitchen with a negro woman. But the existentialist emphasis on individual freedom isn't just a rebellion. It's not just a reaction to the Nazi occupation that says something like, hey, actually, I'm my own person, my life is my own, and I can do with it what I like. I mean, that's part of the message. But Sartre's conception of freedom goes way deeper than that. More than just emphasising our freedom to live our life how we like, what's just as fundamental to existentialism is the emphasis on our freedom to be the person we want to be. And this brings us to what Sartre proclaims as the first principle of existentialism. In Sartre's own words, man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. What this essentially means is that our identity is ours and only ours to create, and our identity is no more than what we ourselves make it. We are simply how we create ourselves. And I think that's a really important message that Sartre has given us. It's worth taking a moment to consider. Some of us might say something like, look, I was born particularly risk-averse. I don't like doing dangerous things. You might even say I'm cowardly, but that's just who I am. That's just me. This is exactly the kind of thinking that Sartre wants us to reject. 
we're only cowardly to the extent that we act cowardly. So in this instance, you might want to say that in one respect, sure, this person's right, they're right to describe themselves as cowardly, because they act cowardly. But the person's wrong in the sense that they describe their essence as cowardly, as if they can't do anything about their cowardliness, and they use it as an excuse. Whereas in actual fact, their identity is theirs alone to create, and they have the freedom to be cowardly or to be brave. If you've ever heard much about Sartre before, you might have heard the expression, existence precedes essence. This famous little soundbite from Sartre is basically a neat way of summarising what we've just said. So each person exists, and each person also has an essence, an identity. The cowardly person we were just looking at seems to think that their essence precedes their existence, meaning that their identity exists before they themselves exist, and when they're born, they're born into this identity that they can't change. But Sartre says no, this isn't how it works. We exist, and then later we create our essence, we create our identity. And what this means is that we're born as a kind of blank slate, but our essence is only formed as we create it. We exist first, and later we begin to mould and define our essence. We're in a constant state of continuing to create and define ourselves. At this point, it might sound a bit like Sartre is just imposing his point of view. He hasn't really argued for it. So you might want to say in response something like, well, that's all very well that you think that, Sartre. But from my perspective, actually I was born in a certain way. Maybe I was born to be particularly caring, or maybe I was born to be particularly selfish. And it might seem a bit quick for Sartre to say, nah, you're not selfish unless you act selfish. But Sartre does actually give a famous argument to this end, to support the idea that our existence precedes our essence, as it were. So Sartre asks us first to imagine a paper knife, which apparently are little knives used to open the pages of old books, but I can't say I've ever used one. So you've got a paper knife, but how is it made? Where did it come from? Well, paper knives don't grow on trees, they don't just pop up in nature. You need someone to create the paper knife. And the creator of the paper knife does so with an idea of what a paper knife is, what it's used for, how it's made. In other words, the essence of the paper knife, its meaning, its purpose and its function, exists in the creator's mind before the creator actually produces the paper knife. Or as Sartre would say, the essence of the paper knife precedes its existence and the paper knife, when it's created, is born into this essence. Now, to relate this to ourselves, Sartre points out that from both the religious and the non-religious camps, people often try to argue that people are actually, in a sense, like the paper knife, that our essence exists before we actually come to exist as people. So from the religious types, they might say something like, the essence of man derives from God's understanding of man. God understands the essence of man before he then creates man himself. And equally from the non-religious camp, you might hear an argument to the effect that people have some kind of human nature that acts as an essence that precedes the existence of each given person, and they're born into that human nature. But Sartre has a problem with both these kinds of people. As we've seen, Sartre begins from a starting point of atheism, so he's not really willing to entertain the idea that God creates the essence of man. And we'll leave the religious objections to one side for now, because it's kind of besides the point for Sartre. He wasn't a philosopher of religion, so he's not going to put forward his own argument as to why God doesn't exist. 
I'm sure as far as Sartre is concerned, the work's already been done there by other philosophers. So atheism really is an assumed starting point for him. But for the non-religious camp who say that there's some kind of intrinsic human nature, Sartre says, well, if you're right, if man really does have an essence that he's born into, there must be at least one other being out there whose existence does precede their essence. And the reason for this is because for essence to precede existence, for us to be born into a certain kind of identity, you need at least one being at the beginning of the chain to have had that original conception of what the essence of man is that man's then born into. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to say that we all have an essence, an identity that defines us as people before we're even born, if there's no other being there to impose that meaning upon us. Where does it come from? Obviously, for Sartre, this being isn't God. So who is it? Who is this being that exists before man, who exists before their own essence is defined, and is able to bestow upon man this essence of human nature? Well, for Sartre, it makes the most sense to say that this being is man. I mean, who else is it going to be? As far as Sartre is concerned, if we're running with this atheistic starting point, the most consistent explanation is to say that man's existence precedes their essence. The man creates the meaning of themselves, their function, their purpose. Because, as I say, if it's not man who creates the essence of man, we're left floundering trying to figure out who on earth it is instead. As Sartre says, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man simply is. Now, Sartre's position is easy to misunderstand here. He's not saying that we have the freedom to literally be anything. If we choose to act like a dog, to walk around on all fours and bark, this doesn't make us a dog. And equally, there's this meme that you've probably seen online in response to the belief that gender isn't necessarily binary, that says, hey, if I can identify as a man or a lady or whatever I like, why can't I go ahead and identify as an attack helicopter and you have to refer to me as Apache? In the same way that the guys who make these memes are misrepresenting the point about there possibly being more genders than just male or female, someone who thinks that Sartre's existentialism means we can go ahead and identify as a dog or a dinosaur is making the same kind of mistake. Sartre is no fool. Obviously our freedom is still limited to the confines of human possibility. But what Sartre is trying to say is that our essence is defined by our actions and we alone are responsible for our actions. So even if we're born with certain inclinations to act in certain ways, we're ultimately responsible for how we choose to respond to those inclinations. We're responsible for our subsequent behaviour, and we're therefore responsible for the identity that we create through our own behaviour. We might not be able to become a dog or an attack helicopter through our actions, but we are able to choose how we respond to our environment and to our own inclinations, and become the people we want to be in that sense. Sartre gives another example in Being and Nothingness to hammer home this point. It's maybe not the most politically correct example, but let's remember that Sartre was writing this book back in the 1940s. So the example goes, there's a homosexual man talking with his friend. The homosexual man is in the closet, as it were. He refuses to identify himself as a homosexual, while his friend is insistent that you repeatedly engage in homosexuality, so just be real, tell me that you're a homosexual. The friend wants the homosexual to admit, yes, I am a homosexual, while the homosexual is trying to deny this fact. Now, given what we've said about our identity being defined through our actions, there's a sense in which the homosexual is wrong to deny his actions here. He's repeatedly and consistently acted in a homosexual manner in the past, 
He alone carries the responsibility for his actions. So the identity that he's created for himself is undeniably that of a homosexual. But at the same time, Sartre also has a problem with a friend's insistence to essentially categorise and objectify the homosexual in such a narrow way. When we create our identity, we never reach a point where finally our essence is set in stone, where we can lie back and say, well, this is how I am now. Because, and this is what existentialism really comes down to, we are always free to invent and reinvent ourselves. So sure, the homosexual is a homosexual in respect to his past actions, and he'd be wrong to deny that. But we can't make any absolutist categorization of the man as homosexual, because the freedom lies with him and him alone to mould his identity in whatever way he chooses going forward. Now, as I say, the homosexuality example probably wasn't a particularly tactful choice from Sartre, because it's easy to misinterpret this example as defending a pretty backward-sounding view here that we should choose our sexuality, but that's not the point here. The point is more that, setting sexuality aside and looking at our lives more generally, whatever tendencies or inclinations we might be born with, and Sartre is not pretending for a moment that these kinds of inclinations don't exist, the choice is always ours to respond to them as we like, and whichever option we choose, that's what we're responsible for, and it's that that defines us. Sartre makes the same kind of point in one of his plays, No Exit. The play is set in the afterlife, and one of the main characters, Garcin, and again I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, had been executed after refusing to fight in some kind of battle. Now, Garcin saw himself as brave as a hero, but it's pointed out in the play that feeling like a hero isn't what makes you a hero. As we've seen, you're only defined by your actions. Garcin was responsible for defining his identity. We can't accept his excuses about how he feels inside. We can only judge him on what he's done, and through his act of cowardliness, we're only able to say that he is a coward rather than brave. In the same way that you're not a genius unless you create a work of genius, and you're not a good mother unless you have a child and act like a good mother. Depending on your own perspective, you might find Sartre's existentialism and his emphasis on freedom as liberating or just as really scary. For sure, Sartre definitely intended his philosophy to be liberating. As far as he's concerned, the responsibility that we have for ourselves gives us the chance to become who we want to be, and that freedom can only be a good thing. Once we accept Sartre's philosophy, we can put lazy character judgments behind us. We're free from the categorizations and objectifications like I'm a lousy parent or I'm a bad person. And by embracing our freedom, we become able to define ourselves as the people we want to be. But at the same time, there's no doubt that not everyone interprets Sartre in this way. See, Sartre doesn't use his existentialism to just talk about our character, to say we're free to be who we want to be. Because as an atheist, he also believes that our sense of purpose in the world is ours to define. By rejecting any kind of an intrinsic human nature, Sartre is saying that we don't have a set function to carry out, a set task to work towards. Instead, we're free to determine our own purpose and to live our lives in the way that we like. Take Sartre's Nazi thought experiment, for example. Sartre famously tells a story of the time that a student approached him about a moral dilemma. It was during World War II, and the student's brother had been killed in battle fighting for the Allies, while the student's father had defected to the Germans. The student was faced with a choice to stay at home with his mother 
because at this point he was all she had left, or to fight against the German occupation. Now, the advice Sartre gave him was almost comically unhelpful. He said, you're free, and the choice is yours to make. I mean, sure, the student knows he's free, but that doesn't help him choose what to do. But Sartre is trying to make an insightful point here. He's not just saying that the student's free to stay with his mother or to fight. More, it's that the student is free to create his own conception, his own idea of what's right, and to run with that idea. According to Sartre, there's no objective ethic to appeal to here. There's no independent adjudicator to say that the student made the right decision or the wrong decision. The student is free to choose which values he wants to uphold, and to act upon them, and he alone is responsible for making that decision. As I say, Sartre intended this message to be liberating, but the idea that we are the sole bearers of responsibility for our identity, for our behaviour, and even for our values and our sense of meaning, can definitely be an uneasy idea to accept. I know that personally, I went through a pretty dark period a few years ago, where I felt like I kind of grasped the ultimate meaninglessness of my life, and it put me in quite a bad place. I wanted some kind of objective ethic to follow, a sense of purpose that I could cling to, and any suggestion that my purpose was mine alone to create just felt unsatisfying, and I wanted something more than that. I think what I wanted was my purpose to be handed to me on a plate, and I wasn't interested in my freedom to create that purpose. Now this feeling, I don't know whether it would resonate with anyone listening to this episode, but it's actually a pretty sensual component of existentialism, and what it's often called is anguish. The feeling of anguish in philosophy is that thing we feel when we realise that we're completely and utterly free, condemned to be free in Sartre's world, in a world with no absolutes, with no objective rights and no objective wrongs. A lot of people experience anguish in one form or another, and a lot of people, Sartre might even say most people, respond to it in the wrong way. You might remember from the two episodes on Camus, that Camus talks about something called philosophical suicide. In a nutshell, when we fail to accept the meaninglessness of the world, and we opt instead to subscribe to a belief system that tries to impose some kind of meaning on our lives. Sartre has a similar sort of idea in mind when he talks about something called bad faith. Just as we commit philosophical suicide when we try to hide from the meaninglessness of the world, we're guilty of bad faith when we try to hide from ourselves the true extent of our freedom. To respond to our freedom properly would involve being authentic to ourselves, living as we want to live, and taking responsibility for our actions. But too many people, for Sartre, ignore the fact that really they can respond to whatever situation they find themselves in, however they like, and instead they follow some well-trodden path through life, or adopt some kind of identity bestowed upon them from someone else, so they can avoid taking responsibility. Possibly Sartre's best-known example involves a waiter in a cafe, Sartre talks about the waiter as being a little too waiter-esque. His behaviour is a bit too eager, he moves around the cafe a bit too rapidly, his actions are a little too precise. Sartre is not saying that the waiter's fake in the sense that you sometimes describe people when their behaviour is too contrived, when you feel like they're two-faced and only letting the nice face show. The waiter's fake on a deeper level than that. The waiter is trying too hard at being a waiter to the extent that the waiter hides from himself the freedom that he has to actually do whatever he likes. Instead of acknowledging his freedom, 
The waiter pretends to himself that he acts as he does in the cafe because that's what waiters do, and he is a waiter. And you can think of countless other examples. Maybe others in the workplace, certainly anything in customer service where you pretend that you're not really free to say anything other than thank you very much for coming to blah blah blah, I hope you have a nice day. Or any other occasion where you act in accordance with some role or system of behaviours and convince yourself that you're not free to act otherwise. But crucially for Sartre, the waiter, the customer service worker or whatever example might resonate with you, they're not really a waiter, what they are is a radically free being. So what the waiter really needs to do to act in good faith is to recognise his freedom and to act deliberately, authentically, in the way that he truly wants to live. Now, this doesn't mean that the waiter can't act like a waiter. I mean, sure he can if that's his choice. He can do what he likes. Just so long as he remembers that he's free, he's responsible for himself, and he does what he does out of choice and not because he's deceived himself into thinking that he is a waiter, that that's his essence. And relating this to ourselves, what we need to do, like the waiter, is to recognise our freedom, and equally recognise with suspicion anyone or anything who tries to reject our freedom and compel us to act in a certain way. And maybe doing so can help allow us to live an authentic life, true to ourselves and true to the people we want to be. For me personally, this kind of thought really resonates with me. If those of you who listened to the fourth episode of this podcast, the episode on living deliberately, might agree, one of the most important things we can do in living a fulfilling life is to live our lives in the way that we want, in the way that's truly right for ourselves, and not through some one-size-fits-all pathway that's already been trodden by everyone else. But more than that, I also think that Sartre's existentialism is just as relevant when we apply it to today's world as it was in the 1940s. Sarah Blakewell, whose book At the Existentialist Cafe I mentioned earlier, I think made a really good point when she pointed out that in a 21st century consumerist world, we're not just free in the existentialist sense that Sartre talks about. We also face overwhelming choice as consumers about what we can do with our lives, with our time, with our money, and we might sometimes struggle to find meaning in it, or even to feel like we're truly in control. Living in such a world, I think that the questions about freedom and anguish in the face of freedom that Sartre raises are just as pertinent as ever. And then while the freedoms that Sartre may have been fighting for in the 40s, France's independence, civil rights, might not be at stake so much today, questions about our freedom more generally still haven't gone away. And as Blakewell says, those who are fighting against state surveillance, online privacy, and the harvesting of personal data might find some inspiration from the insistence that Sartre places on our freedom. And then more generally, for anyone who, like Sartre, doesn't believe in any kind of a god, I think his philosophy is always going to be so important in trying to determine how we can find a way of living meaningfully in the absence of God. There's so much more that can be said about Sartre and his wider system of philosophy, but I've tried to focus specifically in this episode on Sartre's existentialism and Sartre's thoughts about how we should direct our lives. As I mentioned earlier, you can find some resources that I've personally found useful in learning about Sartre on searching for its website, www.searchingforit.org. And finally, I just want to say a massive thank you to those of you who have left a review for Searching For It in the last couple of months. It's really great to hear that you're enjoying the show, and it's super helpful in getting the show out there too. 
For any listeners who'd also like to support the show through Patreon, you can find the page on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. And I'll be back on the first Monday of December with an episode on antinatalism, which is the branch of philosophy that broadly argues that life is not worth living. A perfect episode to set you up for a cheery Christmas. And I'll see you then. Thank you.